Hello, readers! My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by our new presenting sponsor, the North Carolina Book Festival, one of North Carolina's many amazing premier literary events. Happy to host North Carolina's many amazing authors, along with national and international bestsellers, prize winners, independent authors, and My guest today is award-winning author Roger D. Rappaport. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Wired, The Atlantic, and many other outlets. His new novel is Searching for Patty Hearst, which is published by our friends at Lexicographic Press. Roger, welcome to the program. Thank you. It is an honor to have you here. Um, and first, Roger, before we dive into your novel, you are a filmmaker. What are some of your films, and how does the art of filmmaking translate to the art of writing a novel? Well, I am a nonfiction journalist, um, and I write for a lot of newspapers, magazines, and I do books. I was also a publisher, and I uh, segued into film production uh, after one of the books that I published, Waterwalk, uh, mm-hmm. looked to me like it would be a great story. It's based on a true story uh, of a father and son who... Uh, make the mistake of trying to paddle the entire thousand mile discovery route of the Mississippi river mistake, mm-hmm. meaning that it's basically an impossible route. Uh, and they had very little experience. And then I went on to do a, another uh, feature film adapted basically from some journalism I'd done on a French airplane that disappeared much like the Malaysian plane. They still haven't found except this plane air France four, four, seven. They did find, and uh, the recovery of the plane is, greatly impacted uh, flight safety training. And then finally, I did a film about the key role caregivers play, helping those in need quickly access mental health resources prior uh, to things spiraling out of control. Uh, All these films are based on true stories, uh, but they were all adapted into fictional features. And that led to my adapting a a story that I'd covered for many years, uh, the Patty Hearst kidnapping, which I covered in uh, 1974 and 75, when it was both a kidnapping, then a bank robbery that she committed, a trial where she was convicted and gone to jail. The only kidnapper ever uh, to wind up uh, robbing a bank with her kidnappers. And then uh, actually she was involved in three bank robberies Mm -hmm. and a kidnapping of a young man. So that became the basis for a fictional story in Searching for Patty Hearst. And I, I wanna say something to your audience. Uh, I get asked this question a lot. Well, why on earth would anybody want to write a novel about Patty Hearst? Uh, There have been so many great books, her own book, um, many other nonfiction accounts and so on. And the reason is that as a journalist, I had a ringside seat to this story. So unlike a lot of the other uh, people who came on the scene uh, many years after the kidnapping uh, who are younger than me, uh, I actually covered it. And not only did I write about it as a journalist, uh, but I also interviewed the guy who was in the apartment uh, where she was kidnapped. He was badly beaten up. His name was Stephen Weed, and he was her fiance. More about him in a minute. But he lived with me uh, for many months while we wrote a book together, a nonfiction book about his three years living with Patty Hearst, which began when he was her high school math teacher, and she was a 16-year-old junior at a private school uh, near San Francisco. I later interviewed at great length, 
the guy who did kidnap her, Bill Harris, after he got out of jail. I also interviewed the coroner, Tom Noguchi, probably best known for autopsying Marilyn Monroe, Bobby Kennedy, and Janis Joplin. But he also interviewed six of the uh, SLA kidnappers who died in a firefight with the Los Angeles police a few months after the kidnapping. And then finally, um, I, uh, you know, I've continued on this uh, author tour uh, to interview a lot of people who have firsthand information about the case. So on the nonfiction side, um, as a journalist, I have a lot of information. So the question I keep getting asked is, well, I mean, if you've talked to all these people, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you just write another nonfiction book? Uh, and actually, I did write a 275 page nonfiction book mm -hmm. with Patty's fiance, the guy who knew her best. And just as we were getting ready to send the final chapters to the publisher, he changed his mind and decided the book was a little too frank, a little too forthcoming. And he decided to pull the plug and write a what you would call a redacted version. So we went from being an omniscient narrator of a guy who lived with her for uh, three years up to the minute when she was kidnapped, literally, when she was dragged screaming out of uh, out of their apartment. Uh, but he he decided to become a less than omniscient narrator. And so that book was never published. Mm -hmm. And in interviewing a lot of these experts, eyewitnesses, people who really knew the case, uh, the police, the family members, and so on. I've even worked for Patty's cousin, Will Hurst, uh, as a journalist, who uh, was an executive at the San Francisco Examiner and then started Outside Magazine and so on. Mm -hmm. So I've worked with him um, and Hurst Publications. I decided that it was time to give equal time to all sides of the story, because the big debate about Patty Hearst was, was she really a victim, i.e., was she forced into becoming a criminal by her captors, or uh, was she a terrorist? In other words, that debate continues to this day. And depending on who you talk to, uh, Patty, for example, says, of course, she was a victim. That argument failed in court, and that's why she was arrested and prosecuted and convicted and went to jail for bank robbery. Or um, was she brainwashed? So rather than try to take sides, I give everybody equal time. Um, I give every vantage point possible. And the idea behind the book, which I think is especially important to younger people who didn't know this case, uh, which, by the way, the 50th anniversary of this kidnapping was this week, the golden anniversary. Yeah. What I'm saying to younger people is never take one person's word for anything. For example, uh, two people in the same room um uh, if there's no recording, um, can come up with completely different accounts of what happened in that room. Uh, this happens all the time in court, in, uh, debates, literature, um, politics, you name it. And the reason is stress affects memory. And also uh, somebody's version of, of the truth, as I found out when I wrote this book with Steve Wee, can be redacted. You can leave things out because you want to make yourself look good or you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or whatever. Well, fiction doesn't have any of those restraints. So what I'm hoping is that younger people, when they read this book, they'll say, well, you know, maybe what I need to do is not just take one person's word for anything. I need to cross-check, verify, and so on. And I'm sure in your program, you do this all, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. Because the great thing about literature and, of course, history is you want to hear all the different sides of the story. And I want to give you a very simple example. I've been dining out for years on a quote from Mao. He was asked, what do you think of the French Revolution? Mm -hmm. 
kidding, what was that? In the 18th century, we're talking, you know, hundreds of years ago. Mm-hmm. And he said famously, it's too soon to tell. And I just thought this was hilarious. I've been telling this story for years. Well, in my research for this book, mm-hmm. I found out something I didn't know, which was he was not talking about Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution. He was talking about the student revolts in the 1960s mm-hmm. uh, that were huge student protests that you know shut down Paris. He wasn't even talking about the French Revolution. That's what I mean about doing your homework. And what I'm hoping is when younger people read this book, what they're going to say is, now I get it, that I can't listen to one podcast, I'm sorry, one webcast, mm-hmm. one newspaper, one, uh, you know, uh, one re- reporter, uh, one columnist, one blogger. I've got to listen to a lot of different points of view and then make up my own. I'm the judge and jury. And that's what this book does. It gives everybody a chance to tell their side of the story in fictional terms. Keep in mind that at one point, there were nine people in the same 1,200 square foot safe house from the SLA and Patty Hearst herself, hiding from the police um, after she was kidnapped. Whose version do you want to believe? My book gives all sides. And that's what I, that's the beauty of fiction. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Roger. Um, you mentioned uh, younger people who um, may not be so familiar with this case. In 2024, Roger, what are the things about this case that, um, you know, someone say over the age of 40 may assume everyone knows, but which people who are younger than, say, 30 might not be aware of? Good question. The answer is that this story is unique uh, for several reasons. First of all, by far the most articulate spokesman for the Simonese Liberation Army, which was a tiny revolutionary group that was decimated just three months after Patty was kidnapped, six of the, uh, uh, you know, the 10 people in the SLA, get this, there were 10 people really at the time mm-hmm. that Patty was kidnapped in this little teeny organization. Mm-hmm. And um, six of them died in a firefight with the LAPD. Uh, two others were in jail. So by the time of that firefight in May, you know, three months after she was kidnapped in February of 74, there were only two members of the SLA that were actually not in jail. Two of them were in jail. Six died and two were left. So they wanted to keep recruiting and getting more people to join and so on. So Patty became their publicist. This is just incredible. She put out a statement after her family failed to ransom her. Keep in mind, after the kidnapping, Mm-hmm. Um, there was a request from the kidnappers for $4 million, $6 million, $8 million. The number kept floating. Uh, and the family wouldn't pay the ransom. Hmm. Well, the Hearst today are one of the wealthiest families in America. They, I think they're the 11th wealthiest. They're worth $21 billion. They're worth a little, obviously less than that at the time. But they still have billions at their disposal. $4 million is like petty cash, right? Patty was horrified. Her family that had, you know, her whole life she never had wanted for anything up to that moment of the kidnapping. They took care of all the bills. She worked for a few months just to see what it was like to actually work. She had done some babysitting. Actually, I met her, uh, a woman uh, who knew Patty as a babysitter for her four-year-old yesterday. Um, so she did a little bit of work around that. But, but basically, she never had a job. So when she found out 
that her family said they couldn't afford the ransom when they made that statement. She is beginning to think, well, okay, so I can't go home. And if I if I run, the SLA basically figured out because there was a huge FBI man on uh, for him. Um, if she tried to flee, they gave her a gun at one point because they really didn't want her anymore because there was such a huge hunt for her. She was afraid she might get hurt. And of course, right after she joined the SLA and, and, and joined a bank robbery, six of her SLA members died in the largest firefighting in American history on American soil, 9,000 rounds fired. So that didn't exactly inspire her to turn herself in. Mm -hmm. um, but what makes this story completely unique, and I urge uh, younger readers who don't know the, the story to go back and look at her communiques. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, the people who kidnapped her were middle class, lower class. And in one case, somebody, a doctor's son, kind of from a what you would call today a privileged family, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but she had lived it as a Hearst, the granddaughter of one of the most famous media empires of American history. Her grandfather was William Randolph Hearst, mm -hmm. um, portrayed in Citizen Kane, the original media bear before Rupert Murdoch. And um, she wrote these scathing indictments of the power structure, uh, the prison system. She was a feminist. She was just writing these beautifully articulated statements about, well, as you can see, the rich are only interested in themselves. And here is one of their own gets kidnapped and they're only interested in protecting the power structure. She even wrote about, if you can believe this, this is in 1974, about how these big companies were going to automate people out of their jobs. It was inevitable. And robots were going to replace a lot of the workforce and people were going to be, you know, um, living, you know, uh, you know, on the street because there wouldn't be anyone. So she was incredibly articulate. And I interviewed Bill Harris, actually, uh, since the book, my book came out in January. Uh, and um, he told me that not only did they not write these uh, communiques, but it turned out she was not only articulate, but when he got involved in a firefight uh, of his own, actually what happened was at one point uh, they were on the run and he got tackled for shoplifting. And Patty saved his life basically by covering with an M1 and a machine gun. She was trained on an M1, but not a machine gun. She got off about 80 rounds and saved his life when he was being tackled for shoplifting. Um, and he said, if anybody in that SLA was going to cover me, my first choice would have been Patty Hurst. She was a hell of a shot. Mm -hmm. So she turned out to be a real asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Roger. Um, I want to ask you for a moment about um, something that you wrote previously. Yeah, I lived right. in San Francisco for many years. I managed right. a gigantic bookstore there, which is no longer there. Um, you have written travel guides uh, about right. San Francisco, and your knowledge of the city is obvious in this novel, Searching for right. Patty Hearst. Right. My question is, how does writing a travel guide for a city prepare you to write a novel that takes place in that city? Um, I love that question because I lived in the Bay area for many, many years and was a book publisher, as you know, uh, and a travel writer at the Oakland Tribune. Mm -hmm. um, and I continued to publish travel books. Mm -hmm. And because of that work, I got to go to a lot of uh, places in the Bay area, including some of their hideouts mm -hmm. uh, where they, where they live, especially Berkeley, where I live mm -hmm. and the geographic side of the story, which is national, because remember their flight was cross country. 
they they fled to um, uh, they fled, for example, to Pennsylvania. They were in Southern California. At one point, if you can believe this, one of the uh, my wife and I were uh, in um, Morro Bay, near very close to Hearst Castle. Mm -hmm. And a guy came up and started chatting with my wife. Said, "Oh, we stayed in that hotel room um, last year." How do you like it here? And so they started chatting. And she explained why I was here. He said, oh, yeah, I used to work for the hearse. And um, really, yeah, I shoot their horses at the ranch. And did you know that during her flight time, when Patty was on the run, she stayed in a cottage at the hearse ranch? Oh, never heard that one before. Mm -hmm. So this because I, I was a travel writer and I, I've been to all these places, especially San Simeon, a lot of the. All, all of Berkeley, of course, everywhere they went to Berkeley. I lived next to the hospital where Steve Weeder, fiance, recovered after he was beaten up. Um, and so I, I have firsthand knowledge of most of the places that they went. Um, you know, and for example, part of the book, uh, they're in Wisconsin, and, and this is part of the fictional treatment. But I, as a travel writer, I've covered a lot of stories in, in these locales. And I, one of my favorite uh, opportunities in this book, uh, there's a fascinating story. The woman who knocked on Patty's door and actually kidnapped, you know, opened the, they opened the door for her, which led to the kidnapping, um, was an actress named Angela Atwood. And um, her husband, Gary, uh, at University of Indiana, had worked with Kevin Klein and so on. She knew Jane Pauley. And she was the one who said, oh, I've got a, my car broke down. I need to make a call. And they let her in. And that's the SLA leader, uh, the kidnappers, um, came in right behind her. Um, so I got uh, one of the sections in the book was when they're on the run, they're posing as a floating uh, theater company floating down the Mississippi. Well, in one of my movies, we actually met uh, some people doing, you know, traveling down the Mississippi on a barge, stopping off town by town and doing these live, um, live, live Shakespeare. So I incorporated that into the book. That's part of the fun of writing a novel. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Roger. Listeners, we're going to take a break here for a word from Libro FM Audiobooks, and then I will be right back with Roger D. Rappaport. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Roger D. Rappaport, author of Searching for Patty Hearst, which is published by our friends at Lexographic Press. Um, Roger, there's a quote towards the beginning of your novel about the Hearst family along the lines of, they quickly discovered they were much better at covering the news than mm -hmm. being the news. Right. 
And I'm thinking of the Murdoch family, who you mentioned earlier in the television show Succession that was sort of about the Murdoch family, but fictionalized. Uh, do you think that the Hearst family would find themselves in this situation today where they are better at covering the news than being the news? Or would they be celebrities in 2024? Uh, a, a quick note. Um, I have some friends who work in the Hearst organization. Uh -huh. And the company it was vastly impacted by this kidnapping. It's a yeah. much different company today. Yeah. I, I write for and subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle. I write for them occasionally. It's a great newspaper. Um, I love reading it. The, the, the paper, the succeeding generations, uh, you know, it just gets better and better. And um, mm -hmm. Wilhurst, for example, publishes a fantastic magazine called Alta. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chronicle has one of my one of my favorite investigative reporters. Uh, the country, uh, Kevin Fagan, who has a book coming out about two homeless families. Oh. Um, and th their, their coverage of the drug situation and so on is great. But at the time uh, that this was happening, uh, they were put in a, a, a very strange situation. So the Hearst Empire was built uh, by a man who understood that nothing sells newspapers faster than a damsel in distress, particularly a young white woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and he played these stories to the hilt. Uh, at one point, uh, looking for a, a circulation builder, he sent a reporter to Cuba to rescue a young woman who'd been arrested, broke her out of jail, and then came back and wrote the story. So suddenly, uh, they're on the flip side. And to make it even worse, uh, they don't rescue her because the FBI and the governor and the Hoskins consultants all say, well, if you res rescue Patty, there's just going to be another kidnapping tomorrow. And then they're going to start blowing up her property. And God knows... They might even blow up San Simeon. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you're just baiting them if you, you're incentivizing them. Do not do this. So here they are. Everybody's saying, well, obviously they've got the money to ransom me. They have to publish the communiques on the front page. And it's a hearse attacking the hearse. Mm -hmm. um, so this was something they were not prepared for at all. And it really put them in a very, very strange position. Anybody who watches Secession knows that one of the challenges that it that a powerful media family uh, faces is that they're under the microscope. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, you write about the music of the era uh, at the beginning of this novel, um, the Grateful Dead, the Beatles, Joplin, Hendrix, right. Dylan, et cetera. Right. Uh, you can hear music from the sixties and you know, it's from the sixties. Same mm -hmm. from same for the seventies, same for the eighties. Same for the 90s. Uh, it right. seems like from 2000 or so forward, everything sounds the same. Uh, right. There's no sound of the aughts or the 10s yep. or the 20s. Right. Um, do you agree or disagree? And if you agree, why do you think that is? Well, that's a really good question. The soundtrack uh, of that period is very well defined. Mm -hmm. But remember, one of the things that happened was the political connection uh, between a lot of these artists, you know, and and the movement per se. So there were a lot of, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of groups involved in the Vietnam War protest, you know, country drilling the fish and so on. Um, and um, so a lot of these artists, including some that aren't quite quite as famous, um, but they would show up at all kinds of protest rallies and so forth. So they it was kind of a national anthem. And of course, the Vietnam War was the unifier mm. um, because that was a war we were losing, which made it even trickier. Uh, at the time. But I, I totally agree with you uh, that the marketing uh, at that point was a whole lot different than it is today. You know? mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the biggest changes was uh, in that era, 
you know, you could go hear Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. for example. I did it for five bucks or 10 bucks or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, now, you know, the scalpers are getting, you know, many hundreds of dollars. Yeah. So it's a much different audience per se. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have probably the biggest impact of all, which I'm sure you'll agree, is social media mm -hmm. uh, and the way the influencers are able to use that mechanism to drive product, uh, which really wasn't around in that time. I mean, people were listening to vinyl and going to live events and they could afford to get in, you know. I mean, now the, the tickets are, in the, you know, the many hundreds of dollars. Um, so that creates a kind of a hierarchy, so to speak. Um, also, cable has had an enormous impact, no question. Yeah, it's even even without scalpers, um, Roger, tickets are still, you know, upwards of three, four hundred dollars, which seems right. ridiculous. Right. Um, I'm hoping and that, that really freezes out, you know, yeah. like an artist like Phil Oaks, who was the definitive uh, you know, uh, basic composer writing anti-war anthems. Mm. He wouldn't stand a chance in today's today's market. It'd be really yeah. tough. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Roger. Um, I'm hoping you can next tell us about William Randolph Hearst's legendary art buying sprees. What were these like? Well, he didn't didn't just buy paintings. I mean, mm. I think at one point he owned, you know, a very significant uh, amount of European art, but he would buy entire castles, Sam Simeon being being one of them, and then import them stone by stone. Uh, so he dominated the auction scene. And um, his mother, uh, Phoebe, had uh, taken him on grand tours when he was a young boy, so that was where he kind of got hooked on all this. Um, but in the book, we talk a lot about this because Patty's, fiance steve you know did not come from a wealthy family mm -hmm. so he was a hearst and waiting he was uh, really fascinated by the rugs the art and so on and patty was an art major and she had also done european tours um so there's definitely uh no question that if you go to san simeon um and tour you you see this fabulous art collection you know it's, it's now a state park mm -hmm. and um by the way uh this fear factor on Ransom and Patty, you know, the, the Hearst were going to get attacked. Actually, San Simeon did get bombed. Hmm. Uh, the guest cottage, uh, one of the guest cottages got bombed. You can even visit it today on the tour. Hmm. Of course, it's been repaired at the tune of a million dollars. But oddly enough, the cottage that the New World Liberation Front blew up in defense of Patty, um, you know, uh, this was, they blew it up because Patty was ratting out the kidnappers claiming she was brainwashed during the trial. So in retaliation, they bombed this Hearst Castle cottage, now a state park. But the Hearst visited, and they had visiting rights to one of the cottages. But by the way, they bombed the wrong cottage. Mm. It wasn't the one the Hearst stayed in. Right. Yeah, thank you so much, Roger. Um, I want to ask you a question about your publisher real quick. Uh, who is Lexographic Press, and uh, what other books have they published? Well, Lexographic uh, Press is a really interesting company. Mm -hmm. uh, I have actually written a couple of other books uh, for them, mm -hmm. uh, for Lexographic. And um, one is called uh, Angle of Attack. It's mm -hmm. about Air France 447. And then I wrote one more recently about the Born Max called Grounded. Mm -hmm. uh, but they also publish a wider line of children's books, uh, fiction, and so forth. And uh, the founder 
uh, James Sparling, who's, who is the publisher, um, is a graphic designer. And if you you go on my website, pattyhurst.com, to learn more about searching for Patty Hearst, um, my new book, um, you'll see that he did a, a fascinating piece about all the AI covers that were rejected uh, for this book. Uh, and it's it's just hilarious. You just go to pattyhurst.com, which is the, the website for yeah. searching for Patty Hearst. Um, but he um, he has a, a series of children's books, uh, the Lucia Legends. Um, he's he's done a number of other um, uh, a book uh, called March to the Sea, um, mm. which is you know quite a wonderful a wonderful book about uh, Sherman's March to the Sea. Uh, so it's kind of a diverse line. Uh, and I, I want to make this comment. I, I think you'll appreciate it. If you walk into a bookstore today, mm-hmm. you know, as somebody with bookselling experience, um, and, you, and you look at the fiction section, unlike the nonfiction section, uh, the majority of fiction comes from a handful of large publishers. Yes. There's th- thousands of publishers doing uh, indie uh, nonfiction, but the number of independent publishers uh, doing fiction uh, is low because it's it's pretty it's a pretty tricky market. Mm-hmm. So James uh, is doing uh, some fiction, and um, it, it in my case it really benefited from a lot of his own insights um, as an editor. So it was really a lot of fun to work with Lexographic. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Roger. Um, finally, and listeners, we have barely grazed the surface of this book. What a wonderful book it is. I recommend that you pick it up, whether you're familiar with this case or not. Uh, but finally, Roger, what, in your opinion, would be the difference between the Patty Hearst saga unfolding the way it did, when it did, and the way it would unfold now if it happened with the current uh, news, kind of 24-hour news cycle and media environment? That's a great question. Um, well, Jason, um, the answer is that under the current social media environment, mm-hmm. uh, the Hearst would have just been um, the subject of endless abuse. Um, and I think Patty herself, when she converted, um, I think a, a polling was showing that about 70% of the public thought she was uh, basically had become a revolutionary, that she had not been brainwashed. I think that would have been driven into the ground today mm-hmm. by social media. And yeah. one of the things that I look at in searching for Patty Hearst, which I think is relevant to your question is this, is what was different 50 years ago than today? Not just in terms of social media, but the 1%, the idea that a small number of billionaires have enormous control over our economic destiny and so on, this larger point. That's even more true today than it was when Patty was issuing her broadside communiques through the Sibian News Liberation Army. But in searching for Patty Hearst, what is what is very clear about that era is that, remember, uh, the Vietnam War was ending, uh, Watergate was happening, there was a war in the Middle East, uh, there was an energy crisis, um, in fact, at one point, Patty Hearst's story knocked Watergate off the front page. Mm-hmm. So in searching for Patty Hearst, we look at this unique time. But it was, in many ways, um, when, it, when it went to trial, a lot of people thought, well, 
she made a very good case for the revolution mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, basically taking down the power structure. And now the second she's arrested, she's in the hands of a, of a lawyer that lost the case mm -hmm. that, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't sell her brainwashing defense in the case. And I think uh, one thing that is different today and, and is really important in searching for Batty Hurst, there's no question that if tonight Patty Hearst got a call and somebody said, we've got your granddaughter, mm -hmm. you know, we need X number of dollars. She would, she would write the check or wire the money on the spot. That's a big difference yeah. from 1974. That's when basically uh, the power structure was telling the Hearst family, let your daughter go. We understand. And to make it even worse, when that firefight I told you about, when they surrounded the safe house, where Patty had had been in a safe house with them and left to go shopping, when they opened fire with over 100 officers, thousands of rounds being fired, and then they burned this house, and then the coroner went in, who I interviewed, um, who's in in my in searching for Patty Hearst. Mm -hmm. When the coroner went in the house, they didn't know whether or not Patty Hearst was in that house. So mm -hmm. the FBI and the Los Angeles police opened fire, not knowing whether or not they were going to take out this heiress. I mean, what unbelievable risk. That's that is that is how far they were willing to go to defeat the left. And I, I do think that defines the time period. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that answer, Roger. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Roger D. Rappaport, author of Searching for Patty Hearst, which is published by our friends at Lexographic Press. Roger, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Once again, I would like to thank Roger D. Rappaport for joining me. Copies of Searching for Patty Hearst can be ordered from your favorite local independent bookstore. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-A-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.